Unlock the Scores NBA podcast. My name is Joseph Cacharo, and I am joined remotely by fellow co-host Joe Wolfon. Yo, yo. And what we're not going to do today off the top is talk about our personal lives because uh, <laughs> early, early fan shout out this week. We very much appreciate his positive review and five-star review in Apple Podcasts, and that is uh, Killa P. Killa P1 is the name left on the review, who uh, did mention that he does not understand the, uh, the rest of the listeners want to hear about our personal lives. He wants us to keep it to just NBA. So you know what, Killa P1, we will do just that. We will not give pointless details about our personal lives until next week when the fan shout out is someone saying, what's up with that? Please go back to giving personal details. So with all that said, I think most podcast nba podcasts this week or in the next week or so are going to be doing some form of awards picks and all nba picks and all defensive picks not to say that those other shows are boring but i think (laughs) we here at pound the rock pride ourselves on trying to keep our audience and our listenership engaged try to be a little creative so we i was gonna say we came up with that's a lie wolfon came up with the idea to go about doing an awards episode in a unique way that i think is a good idea so Uh, What we're going to do is we're going to go through the major awards, but instead of picking who we think will win or even who we think should win, what we're going to do is we're both going to give our most, I guess we can say most off the board or like most underrated pick for that award. So again, just to clarify off the top, the guys we're going to talk about today, we are not picking them to win these awards. We're not saying they should win these awards. We're saying basically... Here are guys that would be like on the fringe of, that are on the fringe of this race, and we're going to talk about them in the context of these awards because every other show you can listen to right now is going to tell you who should win or who's going to win, and a lot of them are obvious anyway. So we figured this would be a good way to talk about some guys who are having interesting or good seasons in a way that is, yeah, just a bit different than the other pods. So with all that out of the way, I mean, we can just start off right off the bat, obviously, with MVP. You know, everyone's in agreement that Nikola Jokic is going to win the award. Everyone knows that the favorites to, if not win it, since Jokic is the favorite to win it, but the favorites to finish somewhere on the ballot other than Jokic would be Joel Embiid, Luka Doncic, Steph Curry's obviously gotten a lot of pub, uh, Giannis Antetokounmpo having win, won the last two, I don't think is very interesting. I've even seen Dame get enough love as like a more down ballot MVP pick. So we've left those guys aside, and we're going to talk about the next tier MVP, I guess. So Wolfon, why don't you start it off? Who's our pound the rock off the board MVP candidate? Yeah, I mean, you set it up well, because I think it was even last episode where we were like, yeah, Jokic is the MVP. And I think I was saying that basically the only person who realistically had a chance to dethrone him was like a healthy Embiid. But I, I do feel like when people are talking about down ballot stuff and like who should kind of come after those two guys, it's been a lot of Steph, a lot of Giannis, a lot of Chris Paul talk. Mm -hmm. And not that those guys aren't deserving, but I've been a little baffled at how little love Kawhi Leonard has gotten in that conversation. I know like he's missed some games recently. He's come back and hasn't been at his best, but like the Clippers have been you know, one of the four best teams in the NBA from start to finish this season. Paul George has been incredible, but Kawhi Leonard is still easily the biggest driver of winning on that team. You look at his numbers and basically every play type, right? Like post-ups, elite. Pick and roll ball handler, elite. 
spot up shooting elite pull up shooting elite at rim finishing insanely elite like he has been such a good and complete offensive player this year i think that the playmaking growth that we saw last year has been built upon in a way that look they didn't get the point guard maybe that they were hoping to get in the offseason they added rajon rondo at the deadline we'll see if that sort of lack of a primary creator initiator type comes back to bite them again in the playoffs. But I think Kawhi has done a, a more than adequate job of sort of serving in that initiating role. And when he's been playing off of the ball, I think he's been outstanding, whether that's, you know, getting the ball on the move, on cuts, getting the ball on the post, spot up shooting. He's just been absolutely incredible. And like, I don't think the defense is quite at the level that it was at in his peak, you know, his back-to-back defensive player of the year peak. But he's still up there among the most fearsome wing defenders in the league and obviously the versatility and how he can slide you know up and down the positional scale based on the matchup and whatever you need him to do I just I just find it a little strange that he is completely absent from this conversation and the Clippers this was sort of similar to what they were like last year with him on or off the floor but they are plus 12 net rating with him on the court and they're dead even with him on the bench. So with him on the bench, they're basically like exactly a 500 team. And with him on the floor, they outscore teams by 12 points per hundred possessions. And you can kind of do the on off thing with him and Paul George. If you want to see sort of like who has been the bigger driver of success. And with both of them on the floor, they're insane. They're plus 17.5 per hundred possessions. Um, But when it's Kawhi and no PG, they're considerably better than they are when it's PG and no Kawhi. So I think it's pretty clear that he is the the biggest reason that that team has been as successful as it's been. And I just think he should be getting a little bit more love in this MVP conversation. He should be in that mix in like the down ballot race with Steph, with Giannis, with whoever else you want to throw in there. Uh, And it's just, you know, apart from time missed, I guess, which has been an issue for almost every player in this race or any other award race this season, I don't see a reason why he isn't in that mix. Yeah. I think, you know, you made the point that he's not quite the defender he was when he was at his like two, yeah, two straight. He, no, did he? Win? Yeah, he did. Yeah. He, he went back to back um, defensive player of the year awards. And I, I think the interesting thing with that is like when a player is as dominant as, you know, Kawhi was, for example, on one end of the court or even, when he has the playoff run he had in Toronto, that was probably one of like the three or four greatest individual playoff runs in NBA history. It's almost like when a, when a player reaches that level, then any sort of backward slide, even if it's like a minor one or it's like a backward slide, but they're still one of the four or five best players on the planet. I don't know. It's almost like not that people forget about them or don't still see them as great players, but it's almost like they just forget about them now in awards like races and talks like that when it's like well yeah he's not what he was well, like yeah but is he still one of the most valuable players in the league you know or is he still i'm not saying Kawhi is necessarily in the running for defensive player of the year but i'm saying in general like if he had a great defensive season that's just miles behind what he once was that doesn't mean he's not still maybe the de- defensive player of the year or not at least in the conversation and i find that interesting is that like anytime a guy slides even a little bit even if he hasn't actually slid out of contention by like skill and impact, it just feels like people just kind of be like, okay, well, like that guy's run being in this award talk is over. Now let's move on. It's like, no, the guy can still be in it just because he's regressed slightly from being 
an absolute world obliterator. Yeah, and like look at it this way. Before LeBron got hurt, it was seemingly unanimous that whether he was going to win the award or not, everybody seemed to agree that he was a strong contender for MVP, right? Mm -hmm. And I know a lot of people have talked about LeBron's defense and how good it was this season when he was healthy, and I fully agree with that. I think the last two years, you know, he's completely washed away the memory of him dogging it his last years in Cleveland and even that first year in LA. He's been awesome. I still think Kawhi is like a, a clear notch above LeBron at the defensive end of the floor. And by almost every objective offensive measure has been better than LeBron at that end of the floor as well. And if you look at kind of like the on-off stuff and the impact metrics, it's pretty damn close between those guys. So for LeBron to have sort of been this unanimous contender for MVP and Kawhi to have been completely forgotten in that race was just, I don't know, it was a little bit baffling to me. And I think, you know, to, to your point about guys being forgotten about, I think that's particularly easy with Kawhi because of that sort of metronomic consistency to his game like he's not necessarily gonna blow up for like 60 points right like that's just not his game I don't think and it's always you know he's not he he's not gonna have really any sexy highlights either like it's just sort of like a lot of turnarounds from the mid post and sometimes some bulldozing drives to the basket and like some savvy pick and roll pocket passing and it's ruthless consistency is what it is. Yeah. And so I think it's that, ruthless in its own right. For sure. For sure. But that's that makes him like very easy to forget about, I think, in this mix, because it's just to be perfectly honest, it's not that interesting to talk about. But I think, you know, there's definitely a chance like we went into last postseason and he was unbelievable in that first round series against Dallas and in the first two, three games in that Denver series as well. And we were at a point, you and I, where we were like, okay, it's clearly, you know, like there are three players who are head and shoulders above the rest of the league right now. And that was LeBron, Giannis, and Kawhi. And I think at that point in time, it was sort of a toss up, which one of those guys was going to emerge from the postseason as that sort of like, I don't know, not, not official, but like unofficial kind of number one. And Obviously, you know, LeBron put his stamp on that postseason. Kawhi fizzled out in the way that he did. But I, I definitely think that it's possible that he could put together a run similar to what he did in 2019 and come out of this postseason looking like, you know, maybe this guy is the best player in the league right now. Um, and I think, you know, after how last season ended, he has a ton to prove this postseason. And, and I'm looking forward to watching him try to do that. As am I. As am I. Because not just biased of the fact we're sitting here in Toronto but that postseason run he went on in 2019 was one of the most spectacular things I've ever watched um all right you want my off the board or down ballot MVP pick I guess I, I can't believe I'm doing this given what I what I was saying about not just this player but this franchise and everything. Julius Randle <laughs> okay yeah Julius Randle man he and Nikola Jokic are on track to join Russell Westbrook, Larry Bird, Wilt Chamberlain, and Oscar Robertson as the only players in history to average 24 points, 10 rebounds, and 6 assists in a season. He leads the league in minutes and leads the Knicks in points, rebounds, and assists. He's carrying a underwhelming, to say the least, roster to potentially a top 4 seed. They're, I think, 6th right now, but it's like a half game between them, Miami, and Atlanta. Um, his improvement, both in terms of his shooting and playmaking, is basically unprecedented for a mid-career jump, especially for a big man. Uh, he went literally from being one of the worst volume shooters 
uh, ever to now one of the best volume shooters this year. And I know that last point is a little bit more of a most improved player take than a most valuable player. And I know in general that his shooting being ridiculous this season isn't the most sustainable thing, but I've said it before and I'll say it again that I think if a player that we accepted more as a star, if a player that came into this season um, widely recognized as a star or superstar um, had gone to New York and had this exact season and had the Knicks in the spot that they were in, I feel like we would be talking about them as a potential MVP. Like consider a world where for whatever reason, like Chris Paul had been traded to the Knicks instead of the Suns or I don't know, um, a forward, a big man had been moved, like a star big man chose the Knicks and was having the exact same season Julius Randle's having, but we knew that guy was a superstar already and had the Knicks in the position that they were in, I believe that player would be getting MVP buzz. And I think there's a big component of it with Randall that's still like, you know, yeah, he's he's, pro- he's going to win most improved player and people are giving the Knicks their credit for being the surprising team and they're giving him his credit for improving. But I don't know if enough people are seriously taking into account the absolutely batshit insane ridiculous season Julius Randall is having and that the Knicks are having from an overachieving perspective. And again, I'm not saying it's sustainable. I'm not even seeing what he's doing this year sustainable. But if we're talking like down ballot MVP guys that maybe are getting a little lost in the shuffle, I think Julius Randle's season is like the definition of impact and value. Yeah, I kind of think the strongest case for him is just the workload and like the minutes load. I think he's leading the NBA in minutes. He's yep. barely mm-hmm. missed any games. And obviously he, he carries you know, an enormous workload at the offensive end of the floor. So much of what that team does revolves around him and he's kind of serving as their de facto point guard and also their go-to scorer. So I have the utmost respect for the season that he's had, but, and look, the three-point shooting, like the way that that has come along is incredible. And he's shooting them in a variety of ways, right? He's shooting them off the dribble. He's shooting contested step backs. The shot making has been really encouraging to see. But you also kind of look at, some of the numbers and it's like he's shooting 41% from mid range on a lot of attempts. And, you know, his overall numbers are like, he's still not a particularly efficient scorer. And maybe that owes something to the fact that he has to do so much and that there isn't, you know, a ton of shooting around him, even though I think the Knicks are like fourth in the NBA in three point percentage. They've like seriously upped their three point attempt rate. I'd say like after the all-star, like the second half of the season, they've all of a sudden turned into a very, or a much more modern offense. Like they're jacking threes. Yeah. And it's actually like, you think of them as this sort of clogged toilet offense that doesn't have a ton of shooting, but I think they have like six rotation players who are shooting over 40% from three, including Randall, RJ Barrett, uh, Reggie Bullock. I think Derrick Rose is shooting over 40% Dude, from three since that trade. Derrick Rose, I mean, he's had a good season overall, but the way Rose has played since getting to the Knicks is like... Uh, yeah, I mean, like how good they've been with him on the floor is kind of Unbelievable. Um, but Randall's at like 57% true shooting overall, which is basically league average. And I know you it's have a little to... above. It's a little above league average. Isn't league average like 55 right now? It was, but in this offensive environment now, it's up to like 57%. That's... Wow. I, th- so I thought average was like 53, and then this season it was like 55-ish. No, I, I think like, it. you know, if you went three, four years ago, it would have been around 55. And and now that offenses have exploded everywhere, it's like 57. So that's that's part of it. When we're thinking about like awards or, or All-NBA or anything like that, I think it, it is always helpful to take that into account, just how the offensive environment has changed. And how that's sort of raised the bar for everybody around the league. 
But look, I think, again, Randall has been by far the biggest driver of success for a very surprising Knicks team. I just feel like, you know, that putting him on on a ballot would be more sentimental than anything. As in, like, you kind of rescued the Knicks franchise. And look, that's that's fine. Like, there's a lot of value in what he's done for that franchise this yeah. season. Think about what you just said. Yeah. Julius you know Randle. You know what? Julius Randle's Julia, the think MVP. About what, dude, no, but seriously, think about what you just said. Not even in the context of this argument. He may have rescued the Knicks franchise. We're talking about Julius Randle, man. I guess I just feel like there, there are a lot of other factors that have contributed to the Knicks turning things around For this sure. season. And I think the the impulse is to, like anytime we see this happen, and, and it's kind of similar to what's happening in Phoenix with everybody wanting to like crown Chris Paul MVP or whatever, where it's like this team that is way better than almost anybody expected it to be is like blowing people's minds and they don't necessarily want to do all the work to explain why it's happening. So they just sort of attribute all the success to like one guy and be like, this guy is making it all happen. And they heap praise on him without sort of taking into account all the other contextual factors. And I think, again, Randall's been the biggest reason the Knicks have been successful this season, but there are a lot of other reasons for that too. And chief among them has been how good they've been defensively. Which he has improved on that end. He absolutely has. Like he's a, part of, he's a part of that surprising defense as well. Yes, agreed. But I think he's nowhere near being their most impactful defender either. No, that's fair. But I think there's plenty of MVPs who aren't the most impactful for their team on both ends of the court. Yeah, no, for sure. I just, it, it's, again, I compared it to like Chris Paul this season in Phoenix. It's also kind of like Derrick Rose winning MVP for the Bulls. You know, if you want to, take another defensively dominant Tom Thibodeau coach team where their sort of one offensive star got all the praise and and the plaudits. It's a little similar to that where, okay, well, we have to recognize one guy for how surprisingly good this team has been. So let's recognize this one guy. And I think in that way, uh, maybe Randall is getting a little bit more you know, down ballot MVP love or all NBA love than I think is actually warranted as, as much as I think he's, I don't been, think he's getting enough. Well, there you go. We, we just, dis- I mean, look, I actually think like he'll wind up on an all NBA team for sure. Yeah, I think he will. Um, think he will. I've seen people putting him on an all NBA second team. I, I don't think that I would go that far, but I would have no issue with him being on a third team. I just think for him to be like, even if it's like fifth on a bunch of MVP ballots, which I can definitely see happening. That's a, like a bridge too far for me. But I will say he's also tied for sixth with Damian Lillard in my uh, unofficial players of the game rankings in terms of how many times he's been the best player on a court this season. Wow. Well, there tied you go. Six with Damian Lillard. All right. Who's your not real down ballot defensive player of the year that no one else will talk about on a podcast? Um, yeah. So I actually, I, this one to me isn't as off the board and it's not right. like. Well, then what are we doing here? No, I'm kidding. Well, I just mean like I haven't really heard a ton of people making the case for him as defensive player of the year. But for me, this is more like I actually think he has a strong case, not I'm just throwing his name out there as sort of a token inclusion. Okay, um, well, be- before you uh, here, I'll re- I'll actually read out the the five or the yeah, the five betting favorites for the award, I believe are Rudy Gobert, Ben Simmons, Joel Embiid, Giannis Antetokounmpo and Miles Turner. Okay, so none of those guys is Draymond Green. Right. And I, I'm not sure why. Like, I think 
again, maybe it's sort of like the Kawhi phenomenon where Draymond's not quite as good defensively as he was three, four years ago. But he's still so good defensively. And how many people had the Warriors putting up a top five defensive rating this season? And maybe I'm now doing the thing where I'm like attributing You're all their attributing defense. everything to the one, their best player on that. Yeah. End. And, I, and I don't want to do that because there have been a lot of guys who have been really solid defensively for them. Huge shout out to Andrew Wiggins, who's having, you know, by far his best defensive season. I think Steph's honestly like an underrated defender at this point in time. And, you know, not, not to dump on James Wiseman, who's definitely been dumped on enough this season, but once he got injured, I think they're, they're just consistently playing solid defenders across the board. And I think that that's really shored up their center rotation in terms of defensive capabilities. And Kevon Looney has been good. And Draymond's obviously been great playing small ball five and Toscano Anderson, when he's been asked to kind of play super small ball five has been really good. But like Draymond is the linchpin of that defense and not just in terms of what he himself does, but in terms of how he organizes everything at that end of the floor and communicates and directs traffic and um, recognizes opponent sets and is able to blow them up uh, and sort of pre-rotate because he knows exactly what's going to happen. Like all of that has still been there and he still moves really well at that end of the floor. You know, like maybe he's not quite as fast as he used to be, but I think, and this is something we talk about with like Mark Gasol too, right? And obviously Draymond's way faster than Marc Gasol, but Marc Gasol being one of the slowest players in the league doesn't always affect him as much as you think it would because of his intelligence. And because if you know where you need to move to like a second ahead of time, then you can still get there in plenty of time, even if you're super slow. And that's how I see things with Draymond, except he's actually pretty fast. Like he just is always in the right place at the right time. And he's always making sure that his teammates are as well. And, and I think the, the kind of one point against him is that the Warriors are actually better defensively with him on the bench. Uh, and I don't really have a good explanation for that, but they also do defend still at a top five level with him on the floor. So I don't think that should count against him to such a great extent. And I just think in all the defensive player of the year conversations that I've heard, it's like, go bear Simmons, Simmons, go bear. And those are sort of the two guys that everybody's throwing out there as the biggest contenders for this award. And then when it comes to putting like a third player on the ballot, it's it's Turner, who, again, I, I think was fantastic when he was healthy. Capella, who has totally changed the Hawks defense. Like, I think those guys are deserving of consideration, but I don't know why. Like, why isn't Draymond on anybody's ballot? Like, why isn't he seen as a, as a legitimate contender for this award this season? Yeah, I think it goes back to what I was saying earlier. It's people like attribute a guy not being what he once was as he can no longer be in like awards talks or something or like that ship has sailed when if you watch Draymond's defensive impact still this season, it is seismic. Like the guy is still, I mean, first of all, he's an absolute basketball genius and one of the smartest players we'll ever watch play. But especially on the defensive end, the way he just like solves problems. And you know, you talked about the way he can get um, them organized on that end, like communication wise, maybe it's just because he is, such a um an animated person but it just seems like communication wise he's one of the most communicative defenders i've ever watched um and and like that stuff mattered like it he makes players around him better defenders 
just by being on the court with them, in addition to the fact that he in and of himself is like a world-beating defender. So yeah, I, I absolutely think if you look at where the Warriors rank on defense this season, Draymond Green should be in the mix. So now I'm a little upset because you mentioned that you've, like, you've heard Clint Capella's name in defensive player. I had not, and that, that's where I was going to go. Like even I went, uh, I was like searching for odds and I couldn't find him anywhere higher than like having tied for the eighth best odds. And I think that's ridiculous. So I was going to bring up Clint Capella as my down ballot defensive player of the year. I think Capella's a guy that like, if you go by traditional numbers and counting stats, I think he's always had solid defensive numbers, but it, like the eyeball test, the advanced stats, the impact stats, they've never really matched um, the base numbers for him. And I don't think he's ever really impacted the defensive end the way his numbers said he did but I think this year actually he has and this is I think by far been his best season in terms of just impact on winning and defensive impact um the, the like the base numbers are obviously still there the guy averages more than two blocks per game he's got almost as many blocks as personal fouls he's got more defensive plays in general than fouls when you look at blocks and steals if you look at the guys contesting at least five shots a game at the rim he'd rank top 10 in defensive field goal percentage sandwiched between Nerlens Noel and Jared Allen 97th percentile in defensive rebound rate, 89th percentile in block rate. He's second behind only Rudy Gobert in defensive RPM. Uh, he has missed some time this year, but when he's on the court, okay, the Hawks, who currently rank 21st in defensive efficiency, when Clint Capella's been on the court, they defend like a top five defense. They would have a defensive rating of 108.4. When he's off, they defend like the 27th ranked Rockets giving up more than 114 points for 100 possessions. I just think by any measure you can think of, he has been one of the, honestly, like somewhere between the third to the fifth most valuable defensive player this season. And so I think the fact that, you know, even odds wise, like you can't find him anywhere higher than tied for eighth, I think it's kind of crazy. Like I think he should be in the mix for that third spot on the ballot. Yeah, I kind of feel like what's working against him is that his defensive role is similar to to guys like Gobert and Turner, and right. like I think you know they just do argue, it a little better, right, or a lot better in the case of Gobert, right. Whereas like if you're comparing Gobert to like Simmons or Draymond, it's sort of like, well, those guys do something different defensively, and you can argue about which of those things is more valuable as opposed to okay, well, like, if you decide volume rim protection is the most important component of defense and we're looking for the guy who does that best, it's so, it becomes harder, I think, to make a case for Capella. But I'm not going to argue, like, he, he, he's been unbelievable this season. And I, not that I was ever, like, down on Capella. I've always thought he was a good player. But I always sort of, sort of also thought that, like, his counting stats overstated how impactful yeah, he was. Good. And like the huge rebounding numbers, if you looked at sort of like his actual impact on his team's rebounding percentage, it like very rarely actually moved the needle for them. Even last year when the Rockets went to super small ball and traded him, they were one of the poorest defensive rebounding teams in the league even before that happened. Like they got worse when they just like swapped him out for PJ Tucker as their center, but not even significantly worse. Like they were already struggling on the defensive glass and you know, part of that was him being out of position, block chasing and things like that. Um, and I think he's really cleaned that up. Like he's had a massive impact on Atlanta's defensive rebounding, which was a big bugaboo for them last year. 
And that was something you even wrote about when you, when you wrote your Hawks column earlier this season. And like, just the way that he has stabilized them at that end of the floor has been actually pretty incredible. Yeah. And it's been fun to watch, honestly, because like you said, I mean, we both mentioned it now that his, his impact never really matched the numbers, but I think when you actually see it go the other way, where now it's probably exceeding the numbers that we can put on paper or see on paper. And then when you consider too, like Clint Capella, you know, he's been around a while and was part of some really successful Rockets teams. He's still only 26 and he's under contract for two more seasons after this at 17 and $18 million cap. It's like all of a sudden the Hawks have a guy that looks like he could be a, you know, long-term solution as like an anchor at the back for them, a def- a, a true defensive anchor at the five who age-wise still actually fits their timeline. And they have him on what now looks like a really team-friendly deal. So um, pretty interesting and positive development, not just for Capella, but for the Hawks in general. Absolutely. Uh, and not really something that I saw coming this season. I no. think I was a bit of a Hawks skeptic coming into this year. And I think you know the, the biggest thing that has outstripped my expectations for them has been what they've done at the defensive end. And Capella you know, has been... I think by far the biggest reason for that. I thought you were going to say the biggest reason you're now a believer is because they traded Rajon Rondo. But, right. <laughs> no, That's man, I, I got to say, like, this is off topic, but uh, I, I I have to, like, recant basically everything I said about about that Rondo deal, man. He's been awesome. Yeah, he's been awesome. For he's been really, really good. But may, So maybe this year we're going to get the reverse. Maybe this year he'll stink in the playoffs because he finally is good in the regular season again because – you know, for the last couple of years when I've been trolling you about the fact that playoff Rondo exists and you have to believe in it, the fact of the matter is he's been awful as a regular season player for what? I'd say at least like four years now, maybe. <laughs> yes. And so this year, this is the best regular season Rondo has looked in at least a half decade. So maybe maybe this is the reverse year where the playoffs come and he'll stink it up the way he has in the regular season. In the yeah, last he's year. using up all his good games now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, that, that's what happens when you go to the Clippers, right? right? You become a regular season player. Wow. Good call. I like that. I like that. All right. Six man of the year. Jordan Clarkson is the favorite. Other guys that I've seen talked about fairly frequently are Joe Ingles, Jalen Brunson, Montrose Harrell, Shake Milton. Um, I mean, we even talked about Derek Rose a little bit. I've, I've seen him, um, you know, on some sites as a guy that's in contention for the award. So who's your off the board pick and, uh, why is it going to make me, everyone who knows you on this podcast and a friend of the show, Alex Wong laugh. Well, as you know, I've renounced my Pacers fandom. So this is not at all a Homer pick, but TJ McConnell, man, that dude is the definition of a spark plug off of the bench. And he doesn't do it in a way that six men of the years in the past have kind of done it, you know, with volume scoring. It's not that kind of microwave guy, but he brings so much energy. He is such a pesky defender. He gets a ridiculous number of steals, especially in the backcourt. You know, even apart from that, the gaudy steal totals and and just the sight of him kind of running around being an irritant. He's very quietly been an extremely efficient scorer this season. And the volume isn't really there. But this dude is shooting 59% from two-point range. He's been one of the best mid-range shooters in the entire league. And 
I just think, yeah, he's look, the, the Pacers have had a disappointing season, but I don't think you can lay any of that at TJ McConnell's feet. Like he, he's been one of their most consistent performers all year long. And it's a guy again, who I just like, haven't really seen getting any kind of respect or recognition in the sixth man of the year race. And I think that that should change. Yeah, look, he's been awesome, man. I think, was it Chris Herring that wrote a profile of McConnell a month or so ago? I'm not sure. If it was, I missed it, but... Yeah. Anyway, it it was a great profile. And uh, yeah, in general, McConnell's been great, man. He's kind of like a jack-of-all-trades in a way, off the bench or whatever his role is, but uh, pretty feisty and like inspiring player watching him. I I don't have any argument with that. I just think it's funny that a week after you renounced your (laughs) Patriots fandom, you've... Well, that's how you know it's legit, you've, right? You've said TJ McConnell's the greatest reserve you've ever seen. Um, all right. I'm go- my off-board six-man-of-the-year pick is Thaddeus Young, who has been pretty unbelievable for the Bulls. He actually had a stretch in March, or for most of March, where he was starting, but he's come off the bench for 45 of 65 games, so he qualifies for the award. He's averaging about 12 points, six rebounds, and four assists and a steal on 56% shooting in 24 minutes per game. Uh, he's their best defender among their bigger minute rotation players and is a better defender than most six man of the year types uh, or candidates in general. He has a positive on off net rating of more than 10 points per 100 possessions, a double digit on off. He has the best on off rating among the 14 players who have played the most minutes for the bulls this season. And that is important. To me. It's important to me in the uh, six man of the year, race and when you're evaluating reserve guys because look i know um in general on off is very dependent on not just the teammates and the guys you play with but also when you're a bench player it's also dependent like if you're on a team that has a dominant starting lineup and if you can't match being that dominant technically you'll have a negative on off so i I get that it's not always fair for reserve guys but i do think it's an important thing when looking at reserves because look at the end of the day if you have a guy that consistently um, has his team playing not just winning ball, but like um, better ball even than than they do when he's not on the court as a reserve. Like I think that is a solid uh, measure of impact. And I think in the case of Thaddeus Young, it does match what you can kind of see when you watch them play. I think he's been an incredibly important piece for them. I know they're going to not make the playoffs, but uh, I think he deserves some love. And yeah, if we're talking down ballot, sixth man of the year, guys, I think Thad Young as a very complete two-way player. I know he's still not a great shooter, like I mentioned, the 56% shooting. I mean, his three-point shooting still not great. But he just kind of knows his role offensively and does the dirty work defensively. And I think basically every team would love to have a Thad Young off the bench, no less. Yeah, I mean, my only argument is I don't think that that's, or I don't think it should be considered an off-the-board pick. Right. Like, I would straight up put him second on my ballot behind Joe wow. Ingles. Wow, okay. Um, and we've talked about him, you know, throughout this season, right? Not just his sort of defense and how sneakily efficient he's been as a scorer in spite of the lack of a three-point shot, but his playmaking this season and how effective he's been on the short roll. And, you know, I've even said, I think now that they have Vucevic, I'd call him their third best player, but for most of the season, I think he's been their second best player. Yep. And uh, and so I, I think he's deserving of being on anybody's ballot and, you know, not just as like a, a sort of token down ballot consideration type of inclusion, but... Um, and also I should mention because, you know, we've talked throughout the season about how I had some great 2021 takes that I just made a year too early. My sixth man of the year pick for 2020 was Joe Ingles. 
Just wanted yeah. to get that out of, out of the way. Jordan Clarkson is the betting favorite. Mm-hmm. And he's got the scoring. But, uh, you yeah, know, I agree with you that it should be Ingles. And um, actually, I was on a friend of the show. We've shouted him out before. With Joe, uh, I was going to say Joe. Uh, Sean Woodley. We have shouted him out before, yes. <laughs> Sean Woodley. I was on his um, Raptors pod earlier this week. And we were talking awards. And he mentioned that... Uh, like he, you know, yes, like Clarkson's been better this year, but he made the good point of like he's not even the most important reserve on his own team. Like he's not even the best sixth man on his own team. And uh, now the one thing that would be interesting to see, actually, as we do this in real time, and I try to stall by just throwing some words together as I check here, is let's see what's going on here. Okay, yeah, here's what I was going to say. The interesting thing is, let's see who actually is their sixth man. And so I think Jordan Clarkson should now be eliminated from contention for this, despite how good he's been, because Joe Ingles is literally sixth on the Jazz in minutes per game. And Jordan Clarkson is seventh. And I think I was going to say that adds up with what you want. Like Joe Ingles is their sixth man. I mean, he, he probably should start. I don't know. But the point is, if we're talking sixth man of the year, and Jordan Clarkson's not the best reserve on his own team. He's not even the sixth man on his team. He's the seventh man. He's having yeah. a great year, especially scoring-wise off the bench, but he's should we the do, seventh sh- man. Should we do seventh man of the year balloting quickly here? Because Clarkson's be, got to be near the top of that field. Yeah, he, You know what? Clarkson might be having the best seventh man season I've seen in quite some time. I don't know, man. Doug, Doug McDermott's been pretty damn good this year. <laughs> Almost just made me spit all my water. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, this somehow now just became us talking about the actual six man of the year award instead of our original idea of the down ballot guy. But yeah, no, I agree that Ingles should be the guy and should be the guy over Jordan Clarkson. And I feel like the fact, uh, I, I feel like he's going to lose the award to Clarkson. And it's just going to remind us that people do not know how to vote for sixth man of the year because the last Jamal Crawford sixth man of the year award still bugged me because he was not good that season. Agreed. Um, but I actually don't, I think Ingles is going to win. Maybe, maybe it's just because really? of, the way that I sort of curate my Twitter timeline and like the, the sort of basketball content that I consume, but uh, so you're saying I need to mute more clowns. That's what you're saying. You're well, saying maybe I follow too I mean, many and not look uh, Clarkson's been, been very good. I don't think it would be so egregious for him no, to win this season in the way that, you know, some of the Jamal Crawford wins were, but most of the kind of like columnists that I've read or the podcast that I've listened to have had Ingalls as, their favorite for six man. So I, I think there's a good chance that he'll be the guy who winds up winning just because like his efficiency is basically impossible to ignore. It's completely off the charts. And he obviously couples that with really savvy playmaking and pretty solid defense as well, which I think those are the areas in which Clarkson kind of falls short. I do hope Ingles wins it. Like I said, uh, Clarkson is technically the betting favorite right now, but it is pretty close between him and Ingles. It does seem though like a team is going to have two guys finish one, two in six man of the year voting, which did that happen last year with Trez and Lou Williams? That would be the second year in a, I think I feel like Schroeder finished second last year and Lou or, finished third, but it might've been the year before right. when Lou will actually won. And I feel like maybe Trez finished second behind right. Lou that year. It's interesting that like, we're looking at like two, three years in a row where the top two, if not two of the top three candidates are from the same team. It's, yeah. It's, Sounds like we need a seventh man of the year. Award, yeah. Man. Exactly. I think I think you should only be able to have one player per team on the sixth man of the year award ballot. Right, by definition. Yes. 
What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out the Score's Fantasy Football Podcast with Justin Boone. And in case you haven't already, download the Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our featured content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. And don't forget to check out the Score's YouTube page for an informative, yet lighthearted dive into the sports world's trending topics. Now back to the show. Most improved player, uh, Julius Randle, is going to win this award. Other guys you will find on ballots most of the time are Jeremy Grant, Michael Porter Jr., Christian Wood. I've even seen Zion Williamson on some, but uh, I think once you go past those guys, you're getting a little off the board. So who's your off the board pick? I initially had a pick that I told you about, uh, but he was also a warrior. And just given how underwhelming the Warriors supporting cast has been on the whole this season, I couldn't justify making the case for two guys outside of Steph Curry to win awards. So I wound up going with Joel Embiid. You were going to go with Andrew Wiggins, by the way, just so you yeah. mentioned that. He was, and he was and a I can, warrior, I can kind of say a little bit about why after this, but, yeah. but I wound up going with Embiid and he is very much not the type of player who ever wins this award, right? Like he is in legitimate MVP consideration. And I think that usually just sort of precludes a player from being involved in the most improved race. But I don't know how many players actually got better to the same extent that MB did this season. And I think, you know, the biggest jump has just come in his face-up game and his mid-range shooting shooting 50% from mid-range this season. That's up from 40% last year, and he's actually doing it on an even higher volume of attempts this year. He's up to 38% from three, where he was at 33% last year on basically the same volume. His free throw rate, which was already extremely high, has gone through the roof, averaging 17 free throw attempts per 100 possessions. Uh, His turnover rate is down. It's the lowest of his career. He's at 4.7 per 100, which is down from 5.1 last year. And sneakily, his fouls are way, way down. Uh, He's at 3.6 personal fouls per 100 possessions, where he was at 5.6 last year. So two fewer fouls per 100 possessions. that's massive. That's huge. Uh, And that's at both ends of the floor, right? Like he's defending more without fouling, but he's also cut down on his offensive fouls, which is sort of part and parcel of that refined offensive approach where he is able to score as like a mid-range shooter and as a face-up guy and doesn't have to just bowl guys over to get to the basket um, and has just made himself into a multi-level threat uh, in a way that he never has been before. And he's just taken his offensive game to such ridiculous heights that I think you could make a case that he's the most improved player in the league. And I think that's, it would be a nice way I don't think Embiid would actually give a shit about this award or, you know, consider it any kind of an honor. But for me, it feels like a nice way to reward him for the season that he's had where, you know, I don't think he's going to wind up being the MVP. I don't think he necessarily deserves to be the MVP, but I feel like it would be nice to see him get some hardware in recognition of how good he's been this season. Yeah, it will take the sting off the fact that Jimmy Butler is going to eliminate uh, him in the second round. Uh <laughs> Uh, no, but you know what I do, I actually think is that it really will be a shame if and when the Sixers bow out in the playoffs, if Embiid catches the majority of flat. And I know, I mean, I guess it's tough to say that because for all we know, if they lose in the playoffs, maybe he has a terrible series and he'll be deserving of it. But 
I do think he has, as you've outlined, improved in so many ways this season and in like very measurable ways. And I think he has rounded out his game to the point where he is now the type of player that Joel Embiid should be. There should be a team around Joel Embiid that makes it obvious he is capable of being the best player on a championship team. And I'm not convinced the Sixers are that team still. I mean, you know, they've had a great regular season. We'll see what happens in the playoffs. But if it doesn't work out, um, just kind of like already foreseeing that he will be taken to task for it is already annoying me because I think if you just like see them and watch them this year, he is. Yeah, I don't think that he will be though. Like, I mean, it obviously depends on how it happens, but I think that if they flame out for one reason or another, I think that Simmons is the guy who's going to wind up wearing the bulk of the criticism for that. Or it'll more just be, this isn't necessarily anybody's fault. It's just like these two guys can't coexist on a championship team. Something to that effect. That's my hope anyway. Like at this point, if, if anybody uses any kind of Sixers failure or disappointment as a referendum on Embiid and his ability Mm -hmm. and, and the, capability that he has of being the best player on a championship team i just think that's a person whose opinion ought to be ignored right and has probably been sleeping for the majority of this season yeah all right so my i think mine is actually quite off the board for most improved he's got a guy on his own team that is higher on ballots it seems and is like sixth seventh if you look at betting sites and that's lou dort but uh, the guy i'm gonna pick is a guy who already finished sixth in most improved player voting last year and a guy that only played 35 games this year and that's shea gilgis alexander look i know his actual scoring jump was only about four points per game i know people look at scoring a lot when they look at the jump for most improved like i said he was already sixth on uh, most improved ballot last year and only played 35 games this year but This guy went from budding all-star to, in my opinion, budding superstar, like legit superstar. And I think that is an incredibly difficult leap for a player to make. And I also think it's the most important leap for a player to make, obviously, for a franchise in the NBA. And I really do think Shea Gilgis-Alexander showed that he is not only capable of making that leap, but was making that leap. The Thunder are obviously shamelessly tanking like no other team in the league right now. Uh, Royce Young tweeted out a stat yesterday a couple days ago that if you look at their point differential over the last 25 games, it is literally the worst 25-game stretch by a team in NBA history. Like, that's how bad the Thunder have been, and by design, they've been that bad. This team has wanted to tank and designed a team that they thought would be able to tank from the beginning of the season. And the reason that they couldn't, for the most part, the reason that before they shut him down, the Thunder were still somehow within striking distance of the play-in in the West. They were like a game and a half outside of 10th is because of how good Shea Gilgis-Alexander was. Like he was propping up a comically overmatched team on a nightly basis. He averaged roughly 24 points, six assists, and five rebounds on 51, 42, 81 shooting while remaining a pretty willing defender. The guy had a 62 plus true shooting percentage despite using 28% of possessions with no help around him. Like his usage rate was 28% on a team that I cannot stress enough, no help around him. Al Horford was probably this team's second most important offensive player. And Horford had a really encouraging season. You know, I thought he should have been a bigger trade target if not for his contract. But still, if Al Horford in 2021 is your team's second most important offensive player and you just have no release valves around you and you have to soak up 28% of your team's possessions and you still score 24 points on 64% true shooting, that is like incredible 
offensive ability. And quite frankly, offensive ability, I did not even think Shea Gilgis-Alexander had. When you look at the impact he had on the court this season, like the Thunder have the worst offense in the league. And even with Shea on the court, it would still be a bottom five level. But I think you have to keep in perspective that their offensive rating without Shea on the court this year is less than 100 points per one. It's less than a point per possession. And they would be the first team in five years since the process era Sixers to post an offensive rating that anemic. So the fact that with Shea, they're not even the worst this year, it just like shows you how important this guy was this year. And again, I know he's not actually going to be in the mix. Um, he didn't even play half the season. He was on the ballot last year, but the meaningful improvement and the meaningful leap this guy took this year is very, very important for the Thunder and just for himself. He improved drastically. Uh, yeah, for sure. I mean, I think if he had just continued playing out the rest of the season rather than being shut down with a possibly fake foot injury, he would have had a strong case to actually win the award. Because I think all the stuff you mentioned about him, I mean, he was still... He, was, he wasn't a lead guard for the Thunder last year, right? And his ability to scale up his usage to the extent that he did while becoming more efficient as a scorer, despite, you know, minimal playmaking and shooting around him is gobsmacking. And he did it with, you know, the the shooting was really nice and really encouraging. You mentioned he shot 42% from three, but for the most part, it's just him driving to the basket over and over and over again. Right. I think he was leading the league in drives at something like 24 or 25 a game, which is monstrous. And it's not just like him putting his head down like Giannis and getting to the rim and overwhelming people with sheer size and force and physicality. He's doing it with change of pace, you know, stop and start, shifty, herky-jerky stuff to get people off balance, dropping in weird off-foot floaters, like just completely hoodwinking people. And... I think, like, obviously he flashed a lot of that last season, but the volume with which he was able to do it, um, I think was incredibly impressive. And I agree with you. Like, I think, you know, he established himself this season as a future superstar. You know, I I had him on my all-star team when, when we made those picks, and I think he was very deserving of that distinction. And I think I feel pretty confident in saying that he's going to be an all-star and maybe even an all-NBA or next season if the Thunder actually try to win games. Taking Murray's knee injury out of the mix, best Canadian basketball player on the planet right now, Shea Gilchrist-Alexander or Jamal Murray? um, It's really hard to strip away the context, right? right? Like, I think if I was the Nuggets, I would rather have Murray. But in a vacuum... You know, if I was just like starting a team and had to pick one of those guys, I think I might pick Shea. Yeah, I agree. Which is wild. Like that that's right there. Like you you talk about a guy being among the most improved players in the NBA. We're now saying that Shea Gilgis Alexander is probably a more valuable all around player than Jamal Murray. And that's not a knock on Jamal Murray, man. That's just that's how much of a leap Shea Gilgis Alexander took this year. All right. Coach of the year, Monty Williams is the favorite. Uh, Quinn Snyder, Tom Thibodeau, and Doc Rivers are other guys you can see in the favorite conversation. That's four guys. So I guess we're looking at like the fifth most likely coach of the year. Who who do you got here down ballot? 
I want to shout out Frank Vogel. I, I don't think he's going to get any votes this season. And I understand why he was coaching a team that won the championship last year. And they're looking like a team that's going to wind up in the play-in. So it would be hard to vote for a coach in that situation. But I think if you actually look at the context and the fact that he has coached a huge chunk of this season without either LeBron James or Anthony Davis. And this isn't just your run of the mill, like, okay, you, you were, you're without your two best players, which would be a massive challenge for any team to go an extended stretch without its best two players. This is a specifically top heavy team that is really engineered toward just like, like building around those two guys. It's not like, you know, Utah would be in really tough if they had to go an extended stretch without Donovan Mitchell and Rudy Gobert, for instance. But I think they're actually more balanced and better set up to deal with those absences than the Lakers are without LeBron and AD, right? This isn't just losing two of like your two best players. It's losing two of the seven or eight best players in the NBA. And the way that he guided them through that stretch, um, I, I just think it could have been so much worse. And he kept them kept them rolling with like the number one defense in the league, basically wire to wire this season. And I think the way that they were able to do that without those two guys in the lineup was very impressive to me. He has them prepared to play every single night. Like those principles are clearly like really well-established and drilled into them. Their help rotations, the way that they exchange assignments on the fly and help the helper. Um, it's just it's just really impressive. I and, mean, you know, you look up and down that roster and I, I've sung the praises of guys like Alex Caruso and Kuzma and even Schroeder, who I think has been really good defensively this season. But, you know, outside of AD and LeBron, like they're not stocked with elite individual defenders. It really is like the team system that has shown through. And I think Vogel deserves a ton of credit for that. I thought he did an amazing job last year. And, you know, you've mentioned this in the past where it's like if you coach a LeBron led team, it's very hard to get credit for success as a coach, but I thought he deserved a lot of it last season. And I think he deserves arguably even more of it this season for, for steering that team to a respectable record, given uh, the adversity that they've dealt with. Man, they had a top two level defensive rating in the games. Both LeBron and AD didn't play. That is wild. And absolutely, he deserves some credit. So I was leaning at first uh, for my off-ball guy going with Mike Malone, who was actually my preseason pick to win the award. But uh, who I'm actually going to end up going with, I think it's a little more off the board because no one wants to give him coach of the year type credit this year, is Steve Nash. Mm -hmm. And I know, I mean, maybe there's people listening that are rolling their eyes because they're saying, yeah, okay, like the guy was gifted a first season as an NBA coach with Kevin Durant, Kyrie Irving, and then even James Harden. But if you really look at how this season has unfolded for Brooklyn and the way they've played and, and the way the season has kind of, yeah, just unfolded for them. First of all, injury-wise, Kevin Durant's played 33 games, okay? He's going to end up playing less than half the season. James Harden's played 35 games as a net. Kyrie Irving has played 52, but even he's going to end up missing in and around 20 games. So if someone had told you that, yes, the Nets will trade for James Harden, but Kyrie Irving's going to miss 20 games, Harden will play about half the season for them. KD is going to play less than half the season for them. And they're still going to have the fourth or fifth best record in the entire league. I think the fifth or sixth best net rating. 
I think Steve Nash does deserve a lot of credit for how he's kind of kept this team together. By all accounts, you know, he's managed a pretty tricky situation personality-wise in that locker room pretty well. Seems to be pretty well-liked by the players. Um, all indications, if you read stuff by like Nets beat writers, are that he is very good at like empowering assistants and kind of um, modestly admitting when it's kind of time for him to lean on others as a coach. I just think he's managed the entire situation really well. And then honestly, even just like X's and O's wise, if you watch them play, there's a lot of like really creative stuff going on in the Nets offense, especially early in the season before they made the trade for Harden that really gutted their depth and their defensive depth. I thought the Nets were doing some really good stuff defensively too and surprising stuff defensively. If you look at efficiency in after timeout plays, ATOs, the Nets are number one in the league. Again, I know that it helps to have the offensive talent they've had, but they haven't had that offensive talent as often as you think they have. And then even if you just look at the way he's deployed certain players, like what he's turned Bruce Brown into, not to take away from these players themselves and like, you know, the way they've worked on their games, but you also need to be put in the right situation to thrive. And I think what Steve Nash has done with Bruce Brown and kind of turning him into this like positionless defensive player who on offense is just kind of this like rover who cuts really well and like times his cuts well and kind of scores from everywhere and surprise. Like he's done a really good job turning Bruce Brown into that kind of player. You know what they've got from Claxton and uh, just in general. Like I think if you go up and down this roster for the most part, I think Steve Nash has maximized the talent at his disposal. And I'm not just talking about the star talent. So I think all in all, he's done a really, really, really good job for his first season as an NBA head coach in a very pressure packed situation. I'm fully on board with that. And I think, you know, even something that's a little bit more nebulous, like quote unquote, you know, managing the locker room. I think he has to get some credit for that too, right? Like yeah. he has three guys who are sort of somewhat hastily thrown together. And that could be a kind of combustible mix, right? Like there are guys who have been sort of restless or malcontents in the past who have not necessarily gotten along with teammates or been happy with their circumstances or with their coaches. And it's, a, you know, obviously a lot of egos to manage. And I think by all accounts, Nash has done that exceedingly well and has kept everybody happy and on the same page. And look, that's a good problem to have if you're a coach. If you're like, oh, I, I have to figure out how to fit together these three like insane Hall of Fame level talents. Like, woe is me. But, I, you know, I do think there is a, a sort of unique challenge to that, that he has navigated exceptionally well. And like you said, you know, the fact that they're they're on track to finish with the second seed in the East, despite the fact that those three guys have only actually overlapped for seven games this season is really quite impressive. And I, and I think he deserves credit. I think, you know, for a first year coach, he's done an, a bang up job. I also don't think Ty Lue has gotten enough credit for the Clippers season. And if we really wanted to go off ballot, because he's only coached like whatever it is, 30 games, but Nate McMillan would get, should get some love, man. Yeah. You, you shouted him out last episode too, I think. I did. But, um, I did. but I don't know if that's as off, off the board as you think. I feel like I've seen some True people enough. who, who have been willing to put him on their ballots. Uh, And that's just one where it's like, it's almost too obvious because of how easy it is to see like that clear line of demarcation where they were, you know, whatever they were 14 and 20, 14 and 21, something like that. And then he came in and completely (laughs) helps turn their season around, even though there were a lot of other factors that went into that. Like the biggest one to me being Bogdanovich coming back and absolutely catching fire in the second half. But uh, no doubt McMillan's done a great job just sort of, writing the ship and stabilizing that team. 
Yo, if the if the Bucks had Bogdanovich right now, would you pick them to win the title? Oh man, yeah. Like <laughs> I might. He, he's been so good. Dude, and... He's been insane since he got help. Like when he first came back, he was not good. You could tell he was working his way back. But like like you mentioned, once he caught fire, he has not relinquished said fire. He is a man on fire right now. Like the guy had a stretch, I want to say, from like late March-ish maybe and like through April. That was just, he was carrying them some games, including games when Trey was out. A hundred percent. Like, yeah, they, I think even in the start of the, like the first, I don't know, however long Bogdanovich was playing before he got hurt, like they were still a disaster when Trey was on the bench, which has sort of been the through line the last two seasons. But since Bogdanovich came back and kind of got on this role, they've actually been like really good, like a, a strong positive when Trey's on the bench, which is just like a huge reversal from from that years long trend. And he's been by far the biggest reason for that. So yeah, to answer your question, I I don't know that I would pick them over the fully healthy Nets, but with the sort of uncertainty surrounding the Nets right now. Yeah, like Bogdanovich in Milwaukee, I might be willing to go out on a limb and pick them to win it all this year. Like he, you combine sort of his off the dribble shot making with what they've gotten in that regard from Middleton and Holiday this year and the sort of subtle strides that Giannis has made. I feel like they might be in the driver's seat. Yeah, no, I, I don't disagree with that. That's why I want the Hawks to, I mean, it's only like a half game, I think, but that's why I want them to fall to sixth is so that we get Milwaukee Atlanta in the first round, just because I want like one game where Bogdanovich goes absolutely nuts and, and steals a win for Atlanta. Cause well, I, I think... thought, I thought you wanted that Bucks uh, heat rematch. No, uh, well, we could get it. No. Cause I want, I want the heat to get the Sixers because I want Jimmy Butler to bully the Sixers. I think that would be really funny. Well, so, they... so they'd need to be in the four or five and get them in the second round is what you're saying. The heat. Yeah. Yes, and right now the Heat are up to fourth. I believe they have climbed all the way to fourth. They're in the 4-5, and the Knicks are in sixth. It would be Heat-Hawks in the 4-5. I think the Heat yeah. would win that. And that would be a great season. outcome for Milwaukee, too. It, ag- agreed, because I still think, you know, not even just to like go back to like my whole thing from last year and, and why I thought they were a problem for Mil- Milwaukee, but I still think the Heat are a problem for the Bucks. Not that I think... I would pick them to beat them like I did last year, but there's still a problem for them. And I think if Milwaukee being in the three spot ends up avoiding them, I mean, look, they're still, we're still talking about them having to play Brooklyn in the second round, who I think is both of our picks to win the East if they're healthy. But again, there are some question marks there. So yeah, I think Milwaukee being able to avoid Miami, especially in the first round, like that, that would be a disaster for them. Having yeah. to play them in the first round, that is just not ideal for anyone. I think they would win that series this time around, but I like the Heat are kind of catching their stride right now, and I just don't think that Milwaukee would really want any part of that. And I also think, you know, I don't think they would lose to the Hawks, but I think the Hawks are a worse matchup for them than the Knicks are. So for the Bucks, yeah, I agree. So, so I, I think it, you know if they if the, if this does hold and they do get the Knicks, that's a very good outcome for them. Yeah, um, and. I- Again, not only is, are the Hawks a worse matchup for Milwaukee than the Knicks, but just just give me one game of Bogdan going absolutely <laughs> off, and and just the like the social media reaction to that, and the way that the Bucks will get clowned for, you know, the way that they lost him after seemingly having him will will be funny. It'll be entertaining. It'll make for a good episode of Pound the Rock. Yes. Um, okay, so I I had a couple um, All NBA and All Defensive picks that I think 
aren't going to make it that I think should be getting more consideration. Um, Give us, give us those names. So the big one for me that I just like haven't really heard mentioned as even being in consideration is Dylan Brooks for all defense. I'm not really, well, I maybe have some idea why, like the, the advanced stats weirdly just don't like him even on defense. And, and I can't really figure out why, because his on off numbers are amazing. Like they're the best on the team outside of Melton who plays way less than he does. And I don't know if you just watch any random Grizzlies game, I feel like Brooks's defense will pop, but I don't know. I just I, like, I haven't heard him getting a lot of consideration for one of those teams. And I understand it's tough. There's only 10 spots and there are a lot of good guard slash wing defenders, but the Grizzlies have had a top 10 defense basically all year. I think they're ninth right now, but they're like 0.2 points per hundred possessions out of sixth. And I've said this before. I think Brooks is like the linchpin of that defense, which is very hard to do as a guard slash wing in the NBA today, right? Like you don't see a lot of top 10 defenses that are kind of led by guys on the perimeter. But I do think that Brooks sort of holds that defense together. Um, He guards the opposing team's best perimeter scorer every single night. And that can be a, Bradley Beal or it can be a Giannis Antetokounmpo you know like he he can guard all different types of players and I think maybe one of the reasons that he doesn't get that kind of recognition is he's not like a big steals and blocks guy like people talk about event creators on defense and I don't think Dylan Brooks is an event creator I think he's an event preventer and, you know, that that is sort of like the ball denial, um, denying entry passes, denying shot attempts. And maybe that can make his defensive contributions a little bit harder to see and appreciate because his biggest contributions manifest themselves in things that don't happen rather than in things that do. But I think if you spend enough time watching the Grizzlies, you'll see like he is an elite on-ball defender. And maybe not quite elite as a help defender, but still very good as a help defender. And to me, like the biggest reason that the Grizzlies have managed to sustain a top 10 defense all year. I mean, no argument for me. I think Dylan Brooks has quietly had a really, really good season. And I know a lot of people kind of laugh at his unconscious shooting sometimes and and the tunnel vision that he plays with on the offensive end. But I think he's, he's improved as a two-way player this season. And I think, um, the Grizzlies should be excited about it because they've got you know plenty of good two-way talent there. Uh, all right, who's your off-the-board All-NBA pick? Drew Holiday. Nice. He's Who, been great, man. He's been so Who, good. Uh, Drew Holiday, according to Drew Holiday, should be the Defensive Player of the Year every year. <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to go that far. But I think that he has changed the shape of that Bucks team in a way that, look, it hasn't really shown up in their win-loss record. And it's we're talking about like regular season plaudits. So maybe this doesn't actually matter. And there's no way for me to actually know until it actually happens. Like, you know, for me to say he's changed the shape of that team in a way that I think is really going to help them in the playoffs. Isn't necessarily like a point in his favor for all NBA. But I think even if you just look at like his production and, and what he's done this regular season, I think he's been the second best player on the Bucks who have, I'm pretty sure, the second best net rating in the league. They have been 
you know, at their best with him on the floor. They're like plus nine net rating with him on the floor, which is about six points per hundred better than when he's on the bench. He is, you know, most of the time guarding the opposing team's top wing or or top guard, top perimeter player. Um, and he's helped them kind of shift into more of a switching scheme. Like he makes that possible for them with his ability to switch on to all different types of players. And I think offensively, his contributions cannot be undersold, right? Like his ability to be a, a primary facilitator, a self-creator, a pull-up jump shooter. And also just like, you know, it can be kind of isolations where he's driving to the basket or taking a smaller guard into the post, but like he can go and get them a bucket. And I think that has made them like a little bit more resistant to the sort of bogged down type of, you know, grinding to a halt offensive droughts that they've had in years past. And I, I don't think he's going to make it because the guard class is absolutely stacked, right? It's going to come down to it. And like, obviously you've got Steph and probably Dame on the first team. And then there's Luca and Chris Paul probably rounding out the second team. And that leaves you with like a whole host of guards fighting for those 13 spots between Devin Booker, Brad Beal, uh, Kyrie, Harden, maybe, although I don't know if he's played enough. I think... I think- Westbrook whether you agree that he should be on it he'll he'll be in the mix like for that spot yeah I don't think that he should be but uh he'll he'll be in the mix I'm, I'm again I'm not saying he should or yeah. shouldn't be but he will be in the mix no I, I've loved watching Westbrook the last few weeks but I'm still cheesed that he took Kyle Lowry's third team spot last year so we will not be oh, rewarding that, yes. him this time around but yeah like all those guys, Donovan Mitchell Ben Simmons like there's so many guards that are gonna be fighting for those third team spots and it's kind of hard to choose between them. But I think in a season where offense has just exploded around the league and it's like, you know, you can look at a guy like Brad Beal or Zach Levine or, you know, Devin Booker and just marvel at their incredible offensive stats. I think, you know, somebody like Holiday is a bit more of a rare breed. And I'm not convinced that those guys are actually more valuable than Drew on the whole. Uh, and so, you know, he's never made an all NBA team before. I think this has probably been his best season and it would be cool to see him get recognized for that. Um, even though I don't think it's going to happen. Yeah, absolutely. I think those are good takes. So just, uh, to let the listeners know, we did not do a rookie of the year segment just because like, it's pretty obvious it's going to be LaMelo Ball or Anthony Edwards. And we also just did, I mean, like Tyrese Halliburton and Emmanuel quickly, you're kind of like the third, fourth guys. I, I don't think. Jay Sean Tate, like a, baby. Listen, I love Jay Sean Tate. He was on my all nobody team, but I just don't think there's like a necessarily an interesting down ballot guy or even someone interesting enough to be like so off the board as there were with some of these other awards. So I will say it's been a surprisingly good rookie class considering, you know, what was expected from last year's draft. So taking nothing away from this rookie class, but we just didn't think conversationally there was as interesting a guy to cover as there were in the other races. So with that, unless Wolfon has anything else to add, I'll get to our fan shout out this week. Although I know we already did an early one there with Killa P1 who hates us talking about our personal lives. Uh, but we do, I, I don't want to joke. We do actually appreciate the five-star review from Killa P1 on Apple Podcasts. But the more official fan shout out of the week 
is Matthew Bedenikovich. I think I pronounced that right. And if I did, I'm very proud of myself. From Burlington, Ontario, at least that's what his Twitter says. He tweeted at me to say that he is absolutely loving the pod. And he also wished me a happy birthday and said that he hoped I had a cash money day while shouting out Pound the Rock. So some brownie points there for Matthew in Burlington. As always, I remind our listeners, if you're a fan of Pound the Rock, if you've been listening for a while, or if you're a new listener, hit us up on social media. Let us know where you're listening from and how long you've been a listener, and we will get you a shout out on a future episode. What do you think, Wolfon? We good? Do you have any other Pacers you want to shout out this week or for an award? Or I, I think I've said my piece for this week, but I've got some stuff percolating for next week already. So nice. looking forward to that. Nice. All right. Well, next week we will be talking, I guess, play-ins and playoffs because the play-in starts on Tuesday, May 18th, and the playoffs start on Saturday, April 22nd, I believe. So May. May 22nd. So used to the April playoffs. So yeah, we are a week away from that. So everybody gear up, get your sleep in now because the playoffs are coming and uh, it will be a fast-paced couple months. All right. For Joe Wolfon, I'm Joseph Cacharo, Pound the Rock.